0: This is the Strength Anchor Podcast, part of the Berserker Strength Radio Network, featuring APF Illinois State Chairman Eric Stone, as well as AAPF AWPC Powerlifter Robert Bain. We are coming at you from 2XL Powerlifting in Lombard, Illinois, and you can find this podcast online on anchor.fm. Okay, we are on episode three of the Strength and Anger podcast now. Today, we are going to talk about the history of equipped powerlifting. You, which, which essentially is the history of powerlifting. Says it says
1: you, who has been around longer than all these other poppies have been around.
0: So there there's likely to be a significant amount of strength and anger tonight, talking about this one. Because I sure should hope so. There's there's many things that get me fired up, and definitely uh, that raw powerlifting is the original powerlifting. It's definitely one of those that... Gets me fired up.
1: I, I Yeah, I, I'm excited for this one because while I do not compete equipped, I uh, have a lot of respect for that portion of, uh, of the game, and I, I'm excited about talking about this topic because I do think that um, we're going to see a rebirth of, uh, of equipped. But we'll get into that here in a second. so
0: Yeah, don't get too far ahead of yourself there,
1: Bane. I'm excited, man.
0: <laughs> so let's start with what's going on. Um, you just told me a story off air, which I'm not sure you can woefully repeat, but what's been what's been going on the Bane? sounds yeah, like I, you've had quite a quite a weekend
1: <laughs> it, it was quite a week I, I can't share everything but uh definitely a very exciting end of my week at the office let's put it that way um not what I expected to happen uh, one of the the burdens of leadership and this sounds really corny I sound like I'm incredibly full of myself is just dealing with conflict and dealing with you know things that go on in the office and um, it had to kind of put an end to one of those conflicts and it it didn't spiral out of control, but it definitely spiraled. <laughs> so let's put it that way. So uh, again, we'll, we'll clear up what I can and can't share because uh, I know from you know my job, there's some legal things I, I got to be sure of. So, uh, But at some point, I probably will share that story. But that said, uh, pretty uneventful weekend. I, uh, I trained. Uh, normally, I, I train up at the Monster Garage on the weekends, and uh, this weekend, I decided uh, not to go up. And biggest reason being is I just hadn't seen my wife all week. And so... She and I threw it back, and we trained together at the Ladoff YMCA, the same YMCA that the creepy Russian guy spotted me. Was he there? He was not, unfortunately. He uh, Greg does not attend on Sundays; he usually comes on uh, on Mondays. Uh, but it was cool. We were the only ones in the uh, in the weight room there at the Y, and uh, just a nice little throwback to when Nick and I used to uh, to train together all the time. So that was fun.
0: Okay, cool. Yeah, I think it's it's fun to train with your spouse most of the time. Most of the time, yes, okay, yeah.
1: yes. So how uh, how are things with you, man? What's going on?
0: Oh, man. I got a lot of things going on, <laughs> not all of which I can share on the air.
1: <laughs> I feel like we're being super secret here. Yeah, on purpose. No.
0: Well, there are some things that will become – I don't know that I'm going to tell everything that's been going on, but there are some things that will become very apparent in the next, uh, let's say, two weeks. Yeah. But speaking of which, uh, we got the Rise of the Deadlift, Beast of the bench press, which I believe is now in its uh, plausibly 12th year now, the Rise of the Deadlift. Nice. So we've got about 50 lifters coming up here at 2XL. If you're looking for a meet to come check out and watch, um, it's going to be in the evening for a change. Uh, we did that for the, for the Autism Bench Meets here. Yep. And so we decided, hey, I kind of like to a Saturday evening, you know, late afternoon meet. Yeah. So we're going to do that for the Rise of the Dead. It's going to start at 5 p.m. here at uh, 2XL. And my co-host, Robert Bain will be making his uh, MC debut. Yes, going to yeah. drop some bars on... Uh... On these lifters obviously not
1: the bars themselves but uh should be fun I'm, I'm very excited to uh hopefully not totally screw it up
0: yeah i mean the big thing is announce the order yeah say it in kilos and pounds i got a i got a complaint on our last facebook live video because the guy said one particular lifter and one particular lift the announcer didn't say the weight and it's like well sorry in a meet of four sessions in three days we missed one lifter's weight yeah, but to that lifter, it meant the world. Well, it wasn't even the lifter. It was just some dude watching his videos. And so to that person, it meant the world. Yeah. So that's <laughs> what's going on with me um, and some other stuff that'll it'll be coming soon. And we could maybe talk some big news uh, in about two weeks right after that Rise of the yeah. Deadlift.
1: Yeah. That's, uh, actually, Rise of the Deadlift is the very first meet I ever attended as a spectator. Really? I did not know that. Yeah. Which, which Rise of the Deadlift? That was 2015. Those are the old uh, 2XLs
0: I recall. Really? Wow. So yeah. that probably would have been the second year we ran it there. I think so, yeah. Yeah, because we ran it. 2014, 2XL started, and that was the first time in a number of years I would actually ran the Rise of the Deadlift. My buddy, Irv Demanski, and his wife, Leanne, had run the Rise of the Deadlift for a number of years um, at their place, Progressive Sports Performance, up in North Brook. Mm-hmm. And they had to exit one location, and they were between locations at the time. They've now settled in a new spot. But uh, at the time, they didn't have a spot, so we took it back after we starting it back in 07
1: yeah it was uh, i think we had like half a dozen uh folks in the monster garage competing so i'm like yeah i'm gonna go and actually just watch and support and uh, continued my falling in love with the sport there
0: okay cool i did not know that you yeah, were there i was there so i uh i took some time today and i emailed my old buddy ricky del crane 800 squad at 165 um Jesus. look him up if you don't know ricky del crane he's a, he's one of the the big lifters in the sport um, he's the owner of Cranes Muscle World. Um, he does actually make and sell powerlifting gear and other powerlifting paraphernalia, some equipment and stuff like that. Um, by equipment, I mean like you know squat racks, bars, that kind of thing. So he might have a slightly you know uh, biased view of this, but he has been around since the absolute very beginning of powerlifting, just about. Um, and so I kind of wanted to get some some feedback from him on what was the history of gear Um, because the thought is with raw lifters that hey you know and when I get new lifters to the gym you know if we want to back up for a second the question is like why equipped like they would think like equipped is the new thing right and and to be fair I do think that starting raw makes a lot of sense it makes sense to start raw I mean all of us started lifting weights at some point we didn't immediately put on a a canvas squat suit or a a denim bench shirt
1: I don't know Barzim Vaziri's uh, daughter might have (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> even barzine i don't think started now at franz it was when you trained at franz back in the day it was pretty much standard like you trained for a little bit and at some point ernie was like here here's a pair of double ply poly briefs now,
1: I'm, I'm just pretty sure they swaddled her in an old bench
0: shirt. that's <laughs> what i assume <laughs> plausible plausible yeah. um and then after you had to, you know maybe tried out your briefs you're like all right maybe you'll get a squat suit you get one used from somebody um, and then eventually, maybe you have to do a meet. You throw a bed shirt on. Sure. But yeah, we all started raw, and I think competing and starting raw makes a lot of sense for most lifters.
1: Well, yeah, it, just, it develops that baseline of strength, and uh, you you really with with raw, you do have an idea of kind of where it, I guess it's easier to spot the weaknesses and, and start to work on those deficiencies as you uh, you know as you just kind of come into the sport. I mean, there is that that strength curve that starts and it's really you know sharp, and you're you're gaining strength and you're gaining ground really really quick. And, but it's important to to build that that base uh, as you get into the, the you know the gear as you start going that way. Only because again, it's it's only going to help you.
0: Right. I mean, I recommend lifters don't start immediately in gear. And even when they start in gear, we don't necessarily recommend they start in the the, the full on gangster gear. Yep. Usually, when people are interested in it, we tell them, hey, don't go out and buy something immediately because yeah. we talked about last week. One of the reasons why I equipped maybe you know, took a back seat to raw is that the cost of equipment has gotten pretty high. Um, and the learning curve got pretty high. So most lifters are probably better off if they can find it, find a used piece of gear that's broken mm-hmm. in, not as tight as it plausibly could be. Right. Um, I can't remember if I told this story last week or not, but, uh, in going to my first meet there again, was no raw. This is 2000 Illinois state meet at Franz gym. Um, I read the rule book surprisingly, um, you know, some lifters, they asked questions that they could answer merely by reading. And I actually, as a teenager, hmm. went and read the rule book what? and saw and saw that we needed a one-piece.
1: Wait, wait, as a teenager, you read the rule book, and you have 30- and 40-year-old men and women who don't read the rule book.
0: Just don't read, actually. Oh, okay. That's right. Just don't read at all. At least they're consistent. Right. So, and I saw you had to wear a one-piece suit, and so I went to Franz gym, who was hosting the meet, and I said, hey, you know, what do I need to compete? And Amy Jackson, who was there, and he said, oh, well... You know, we could just get you a double ply poly squat suit and Amy said, "Let me give you a looser one." And I had no idea how to put it on. I didn't have, <laughs> I didn't have uh what are called suit slickers, which is kind of like um basically like tights that go on your legs. It's basically thigh highs that you use to yeah, get stuff on. Exactly. And she's like, oh, this is a loose pair. This is a loose suit. And it took me like 45 minutes sweating. Yeah, didn't you say it took like th- three people to take it off you two? Uh, that would have been another meet. That okay. was when I was full on gangster canvas. <laughs> this was just my first poly uh, squat suit. And it took me like 45 minutes just sweating and yanking on it at the fronts, like, I don't even know what it was. I don't, it wasn't a locker room. It was like a changing room. Um, so... Now I'm sure there some folks chuckling at that, like, hey, look at this guy. Yeah, and Amy said, oh, yeah, that was a loose pair. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, uh, but going back to kind of like the origins of powerlifting, um, Ricky Dale Crane had firsthand knowledge of the very first Marathon, which was a company no longer in business, but they made the first you know, equipment, the first, quote, super suit, Um, And he saw it in 1975. He saw George Crawford at the 1975 Senior Nationals. Mm -hmm. Now, some of you might not know what senior means, but uh, and they still use this denomination, I believe, in weightlifting. Senior meant like the top-level national meet, So it was like the top-level open lifters. And there was also junior nationals, which was like one step below, but still just open lifters, not junior as in the Mm. age group. Gotcha. Um, Actually, uh, when I posted some of the stats from the past summer bashes and raw meat, someone else had brought up, hey, I remember doing the the APF Junior Nationals at Velocity, where I used to work, um, I think back in 05, 06, maybe? Mm-hmm. And uh, Al Kazlaw, who came went on to become a very good lifter, lifted there. Irv Demanski remembers competing against him. And that was what that Junior Nationals was. Not junior as in the age group, but junior as in the secondary meet to senior nationals. So
1: this is almost like the... The amateur and the pro day, kind of like what some of the other meets are doing
0: now? Similar, yeah. I mean, they were they were usually in separate locations and separate mm-hmm. dates, and it was right. kind of split things up and give lifters that weren't good enough for senior nationals a national stage. Sure. If you had placed top three at seniors, you could not lift at juniors. Mm. Kind of like, I know a, a number of organizations now do like an American Open. Yeah. That would be the equivalent of what junior nationals. Now, bear in mind, at that time, there was very few divisions. It was basically just open. There was no Levels of equipment, as we'll talk about in a second. Yeah. Um, And the age divisions were probably very limited. It was mainly like teenage, maybe one or two master's divisions at that point. Um, And so the competition was very high Mm -hmm. because there was only one organization. At that time, it was the AAU, Mm -hmm. later turned to the USPF. And there wasn't like drug-tested, non-tested, raw-equipped, single-ply, double-ply, raw with wraps, raw without wraps. (laughs)
1: firemen and police and
0: which we we love firemen policemen I we if, do we if do if george Harvey listens to this we love firemen i'm not sure they necessarily need their own division at every meet i mean
1: it, it is what it is i mean at that point you could always say there's a, there's a whole military division too you could you could really what about it? a strength coaches division yeah i mean it, right a logistics division there's got to be one of those two right yeah
0: definitely not <laughs> so the first marathon super suit 1975 and according to ricky Um, These first super suits were almost basically like tight, strong wrestling singlets. And that's kind of how the gear evolved is that Mm -hmm. lifters are like, hey, maybe if I take my cotton, maybe slightly polyester singlet Mm -hmm. and, you know, powerlifting, it always had a singlet because you needed a one piece uniform so the judges could evaluate the spots on the body, you know, for squat depth, make sure your butt stays on the bench, make sure your hips are locked in the deadlift. That's why we wear a singlet. It's not because... We just like to look, you know. It's called fashion. We like to look cool. I, you know, let, let's let's take a little aside here. What's with people just training in their singlet all the time? I really, as a as an equipped lifter, I don't get it. Can you explain this for all lifter bane? <laughs> uh, all the time, I'm
1: not really sure. I think it's just uh, some people will use the the moniker. Oh, you you train how you how you compete i, I kind of get that do you do heavy
0: singles all the time in training uh, as well yeah i
1: i guess i don't always understand why other in some folks just they really they get a size smaller maybe they're trying to get some kind of rebound out of their
0: <laughs> their suit i i really don't know which is where this all came from actually yes it's it's just it's gear on a very low level and okay as a geared lifter we never wore singlets in training ever and the, really the only reason you wore a singlet was over your bench shirt or when you benched now, certainly, we wore our squat suits, deadlift suits, briefs, and training. Sure, but there was never a time when I saw anybody at Franz's gym, at Monster Garage. Oh, well, it wasn't Monster Garage. At Marosher, Yeah. At any other place I trained, wearing their singlet for training.
1: All right, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna let the secret out. I'm, I just got to do it, man. Sorry for all the guys that train their singlets. It's just for the crotch shots. That's all. It's for. <laughs> <laughs> That's all it's for.
0: Do it for the gram.
1: Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's for the likes, man.
0: <laughs> okay aside over there i don't get that but hey so whatever that's so why i don't get me no likes but anyway. <laughs> so yeah and that's where it came from is almost like it is today where lifters are maybe wearing a slightly stronger material singlet maybe uh, granted i don't think any of the singlets now are giving any rebound but at that time they were and i, I guess when you're thinking like 1970s into the 1980s yeah polyester was big sure polyester was a big it was a big material big period <laughs> it, it was big polyester yeah. was big and so marathon and then later um, Ricky Del Crane himself Fred Hatfield kind of got his hat into the the realm back then <laughs> See what you did there uh, Ernie Franz and later John inzer and mm-hmm. Pete from Titan they all started making polyester basically singlets that were squat suits mm-hmm. um, again marathon was the first they're no longer in business. Um, I actually have an old marathon deadlift suit that, uh, uh, John Smoker gave me. Um, people would still talk about those marathon deadlift suits. And, and I will say I have that suit. I don't think I could fit into it right now, unfortunately. Um, little too 181, 198 ish, not quite enough. 165 ish, Thick, a little thicker. Um, and, but people for years would still talk about these marathon deadlift suits. Um, and I will say that material that the marathon had, I've never seen anybody else have this material it is Hmm. almost a plasticky it the, the only one that's similar is titans but it's not the same um, no one else has the same material as Marathon had. Did, did they have some type of patent on it or like what? I don't know. I don't know. It's a good question because they went out of business, but people for years after, even when I started lifting in the 2000s, yeah. you know, and like the powerlifting, you know, buying, trading marketplace, people would still try to buy up those old Marathon deadlifts. <laughs> the powerlifting suits. dark web. The powerlifting dark web of gear. <laughs> it's now moved to Facebook and Instagram. Yes. Yes. Um. And that's kind of where it started. I mean, according to Ricky, even before 1975, lifters were always trying to wear as tight of a shirt, as tight as a singlet. Um, he says that it was John Enzer that had the first bench shirt around 85, 86. Um, according to Ernie Franz, Ernie Franz had the first bench shirt. Um, <laughs> who's who's right on that? Uh, I, I don't know. I wasn't... Well, I was there, but I certainly wasn't powerlifting in 85, 86. I was, uh, no, were you like two? Uh, yeah, I would have been two or three. Um, <laughs> I was hanging around. Um... And it, and it, I've heard the story from Ernie. Ernie claims that it started with, like, it was like a combination bench shirt, singlet squat suits. It's hard. It was like, I, I, we need to get Ernie on, of course. I don't even know if we could fully tell this story justice anymore. Yeah. But it was like an all-in-one, like, Ernie was, Ernie came up with tons of ideas. And Ernie was the type of, like, crazy genius that would have a hundred ideas 90 to 95 of them would be crazy, but 5 to 10 of them would be crazy that's genius. Absolute genius, yeah. I mean, he would come up with some crazy stuff when it came to equipment, um, but that 5 to 10% would just be genius, and that's where he came up with some of these things like we'll talk about later, like the denim bench shirt, mm-hmm. like the canvas squat suit that's still used today. Um, who, who created the bench shirt? We don't know. It was around the mid-'80s. Um, somewhere in that time frame, John Inzer got his hands on a patent. And I'm not saying he did anything wrong. Everything he did was totally legal mm-hmm. and totally above board. But it was not a patent for the bench shirt. It was a forward-facing sleeve spacesuit patent. When, when we do an episode on the Franz IPF Inzer Affair, mm-hmm. um, which is quite a story, uh, I will dive more deep into it. I did a little bit of research on it today. Someone wrote an article that I read today talking about all this in the lawsuit with Franz and IPF, which isn't really related. Um, but John Enzer got the license to a patent for a like a spacesuit shirt with forward facing sleeves and used that for the bench shirt. Hmm. Um and until about 2002 no one in the US was allowed to uh manufacture or sell bench shirts unless they had been licensed through Enzer, which I don't believe anybody did. Hmm. Um, there was a big lawsuit between Ernie Franz and Enzer. Ernie claims he invented the bench shirt first. Enzer said, Enzer definitely had the patent. That's for sure. And supposedly Ernie, well, not supposedly. Ernie was still making bed shirts <laughs> even, after he, even after he was told er, not to. Ernie does what he wants. Right. He was still selling bench shirts um, even after the patent ended uh, or even before the patent ended. Uh Ricky Crane, he was actually having his bench shirts made in Japan for a while until hmm. the patent ran out. So he kind of skirted his way around, and it was like like mythical. Like, oh, can you get a Crane bench shirt? Because at that time for a while, unless you could sneakily get one under the table at Franz Gym, the only bench shirt you could get from about 86 until 2002 was through Inzer. That was wow. it. That was the only place you would get a bench shirt. Wow. Um, I think I told in the first episode my first introduction to powerlifting was through GoHeavy.com, com, and there was a big argument between uh, Tim Burner, old school powerlifting message board people remember Tim Burner, and is Jamie. It Tim Burner account or his actual name? No, his name was. Oh, well, I don't know what his actual. I never met the guy, but. He was infamous on the powerlifting message boards hmm. um and then Jamie Harris, who was a big bencher back in the day, and they were arguing about inzer and Franz bench shirts, and that was in ninety nine two thousand so there was Franz bench shirts out there, definitely um but it wasn't until two thousand two that anybody else, at least legally in the u s um introduced a new bench shirt, and that would have been the fury and I remember that specifically because I started powerlifting in two thousand and hmm. I did have a Franz bench shirt <laughs> um. Probably before the patent ran out. Whoopsies. <laughs> yeah. And when Titan introduced the Fury, the whole bench shirt game changed. Um, up until that point, it was basically just Inzer. And all of their shirts uh, were basically closed back. And if you've ever seen a bench shirt now, they're either open back or they mm-hmm. have like a stretchy singlet material on the back. And Titan was the first to introduce that in 2002. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Um, and man, that's stretchy. I, I remember getting some people into those closed back bench shirts. you think getting people into gear is hard now when it was all the same material all the way around their body. It Frick was, that. It was, un, ask Marosher about this, unbelievable. And imagine, now, we'll talk about this in a second, but imagine somebody who was in an all-denim bed shirt, like denim all the way around, <laughs> literally, jean material. Yes, that's what Franz made. And before Ernie came up with the open back, yeah, it was denim all the way around. So you'd get like Casper, you'd cover yourself in baby powder, and you'd hope to God you could get that bed shirt on.
1: I'm just imagining somebody like a Steve Brock or a Barzine trying to get that shirt on them.
0: I mean, just, giant, sweaty, hairy men getting into denim bench shirts. Well, I mean, I told the story about my first meet my mom... Like a good time. <laughs> my mom walked into the meet and she saw a bunch of dudes what looked like straight jackets because mm-hmm. they were wearing canvas bench shirts. Yeah. That's um, about right. <laughs> that's that's about what they looked like. Yeah. So that was kind of when... Gear really took off, I think, was in the early 2000s. Um, It was around, let's back up a little bit, let's go back to 82. Mm -hmm. Um, It's it's a good year. (laughs) Yeah, I I was not born yet. You must have been born then. I was born then. Oh, okay. So back in 82, Ernie Franz left um, the USPF and IPF and formed what started as the American Masters Powerlifting Federation, the AMPF. Story for another time. He ran, I believe it was the IPF Masters Worlds. Um, And he got into a big argument with the IPF officials. They invalidated all the records they broke there. He wanted to break the um, age groups into five-year increments, and they said, no, you have to do 10. And that's what kind of led to him leaving and forming the APF. It was also drug testing was a big hot-button issue at that time. Um, When the AMPF became the APF, one of their early sales points was that we will never drug test. Hmm. And it let's back up to the 80s for those of you that don't realize this. It wasn't until 1993, I wanna say, that antibiotic steroids became a Schedule Three drug um, in the 80s. And now it wasn't like, you know, you could just buy steroids in the store, but it wasn't, uh, you could go to the, according to some, you could just go to the doctor and say, hey, you know, I wanna get big and strong. Could you prescribe me some steroids? Hmm. Interesting. Uh, so it wasn't the same kind of deal like it is now where it's like if you get caught distributing um or possessing a large amount of steroids that they're gonna, you know, lock you up. It was at that time in the eighties it try well, just open an anti aging clinic and then you're fine. Right. Well yeah, we all know that. <laughs> But in the 80s, I mean, it was truly. Um, if you wanted steroids, it was not hard. Not that it's hard to find it now, I don't believe, but it definitely was not hard to find uh, then. I love what we talk about. Like, we know what we're talking about. Like, yeah, it's not hard. It's stuff to do. I'm sure I could ask ask a few people. Yeah, I think
1: I could probably get the hookup if I need it. Uh,
0: that, that's a that's a whole other episode talking about that oh, issue. Oh, that's
1: going to be a few episodes because it's uh... – That's a thing.
0: But that is why Ernie went originally and left and formed the AMPF and then formed the APF. So it it is relevant. Um, And it was around that time um, that Ernie started experimenting with double-ply squat suits. Mm. And he started off, he started with like a double-ply crotch, which was, you know, disapproved by the IPF. (laughs) And because the crotches were blowing in a lot of these early squat suits, people don't realize. I mean, it was, even when I started in the 2000s, especially with the denim bench shirts, it was almost like, you know, you always brought a backup bench shirt. You always brought a backup squat suit because about 30% of the time you could assume that your gear was going to blow. Jeez. I mean, it was it was often, especially with the denim bench shirts.
1: And and again, you talk about that barrier to entry. I understand that the equipment was not quite as expensive as it is now. There's still an expense to that. No doubt. I mean, and, and so that's, I mean, I think that's why you have kind of the, the joke of people who come in with essentially a suitcase to a meet because you've got, you know, Two shirts, two swat suits, two deadlift suits, four pairs of shoes.
0: And I mean, one of our old members who still comes here once in a while, um, Terry Davis, he literally has, like, I don't even think it, it would not fit for a carry-on. I mean, oh, it, no.
1: This is a it's it's like a 50-pound bag. It is. a It's more than that. It is a huge duffel bag. I had the size down of that for a long time. I just didn't like it. It didn't have the shoulder strap. And, I mean, the size up, like, I can fit one of my children in there <laughs> with, with minimal effort. Maybe a
0: couple of them. They're kind of small. I don't know, man. I, mean, I got two teenagers, man. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. So, and Ernie, that's kind of what opened the door when Ernie started the APF. He is the one who started multiply. Prior to that, it had always been single ply, and basically poly. I think back in those days, some of the other organizations did allow denim. And if you didn't know this, because you probably, I, I don't know, can't remember the last time I saw a denim bench shirt or any kind of gear at a meet. Very every once in a while, we'll see one at the APF meet, but. In the '80s, denim was a very popular material, especially for bed shirts. Hmm. Um, and it was, again, according to Ernie, it was Ernie that introduced that acid washed or relaxed. What, what was it? Um, I, I think probably <laughs> neither. Probably the roughest kind you can get, Got generally. It. Got it. And then later, the very bad joke, actually. Man. And then in later years, Ernie would take a piece of seatbelt material and sew it into the the collar to make sure that didn't blow. Jeez. And you know, it was definitely. It was in the late 90s um, that Ernie came out with the canvas squat suit, which mm-hmm. was definitely way different. I mean, Ernie tells the story about how he went down to the shipping yard and was like, hey, what's the strongest material that you have? And they're like, well, we got this canvas that we use for sales. Mm-hmm. And he said, all right, give me some of that. And hmm. he took that, made it into a squat suit, made some modifications so, again, it wouldn't blow. He put a he put a sideways TP5000 knee wrap in the crotch. Mm-hmm. Um he put some denim on the legs, um, you know. Added Velcro, so it would be added Velcro to the strap, so it would be easier to get into. Um, and that's, I don't know that really gear, at least from a squat suit perspective, has progressed. Now it's gotten better in its usability, but from the 90s, I don't know that we've really progressed too much beyond the canvas squat suit. I mean, there's yeah. nothing stronger than that. At a certain point, it becomes, you know. You can only use so much equipment to be able to achieve depth. Right, right. Now, the polyester has taken off unbelievable. The polyester that they used in those old marathon suits, even in the 80s, it was a way stretchier, not as strong material. In fact, Titan was really the one that started with you know, their, I don't know what they call it, but the material they have was much rougher, much stronger mm-hmm. than anything anybody else is using. And are and Titan and metal and others have continued to, you know, find new and stronger polyester materials to wear now. Nobody uses denim. Um, all the single ply organizations banned denim. Um, I think for the IPF, USAPL, it was like an aesthetic kind of thing. I mean, why would you want to be wearing a, you know, a jean shirt? I mean, what if you're in Canada? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, this was the 80s after all. It's true, it's true.
1: I mean, as you said, single play is bullshit. So it's not <laughs> even really a conversation at this point.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, d- w- w- we'll get to that. Man. I know. We Trust will. me. I we'll know. We'll get to. We'll I'm, just,
1: I'm trying to arouse the anger so that we we get this <laughs> the emotion. Like every now and then, again, you guys don't see this. I I have seen Eric get fired up. It's rare. He is usually a pretty stoic guy. He maintains his composure, but every now and then, Eric gets fired up. Yeah, and it is awesome to see. It is really fun. Uh, I don't want to say it's funny, but it's not not <laughs> funny. And so I am trying to kind of poke the bear a little bit here. And, yeah, damn uh,
0: single ply. Exactly.
1: Yes. Let the hate flow through you.
0: So it was around the 2000s when I started getting into it. I think it was Metal Militia. We talked about this last mm-hmm. week. They basically took a pair of scissors. Um, if you watch West Side vs. the World, they talk about this. They took a pair of scissors and they cut up the back of the bed shirt. Mm-hmm. Now, before Titan had the stretchy back, Franz had the open back, but you still Velcroed it shut. Basically, there was a closed neck at the back. Mm -hmm. It was not open all the way in the back. And then you actually Velcroed it as closed as you could because the difference was at that time, the bench shirts were using the material of the chest plate Mm -hmm. versus once you cut the back open, it became an open back bench. You could pull the collar way down, and then it became that you're benching off the collar rather Mm -hmm. than benching off the material of the chest plate. That's Mm -hmm. why... The super duper phenom, which has like a fourteen ply super neck, Jeez. is so popular is because basically it's a complete open back shirt, and your the pressure is not in the chest plate like a tr- an old school eighties bench shirt. Um, it mm. is truly through the collar. Mm. Um, even some of the stretchy back bench shirts, I see what some of the guys are using now. Um, you know, some of the advanced. Uh, titan and Inzer and metal bench shirts, they have a stretchy back, and they're treating them like an open back bench shirt. They're pulling the back up, they're pulling the front down as much as their rules will allow, mm-hmm. and they're almost treating it like an open back bench shirt. Hmm. Um, I mean, and it's interesting because now we've had 1,000-pound benches <sighs> in a bench shirt. Yeah, um, multiple. I mean... Didn't Blaine Sumner bench a thousand in a single ply? I believe he has, yeah. You know, I mean, which is unbelievable to me, which again proves that not Blaine Sumner's bullshit. He's unbelievable, but single ply is bullshit. Yes. Because if you're benching a thousand in a single ply bench shirt, why is it that much different than a multiply bench shirt? Um, but when I first started, the big barrier was 800. That was like no one would ever reach that 800 pound equipped bench raw barrier. So, and, that, so
1: that's the four minute mile, basically.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it was it well, and it was once everybody cut that that neck of the bench shirt and opened it up. Um, I remember Anthony Clark did a really controversial 800-pound bench, and some people didn't recognize it. Um, Anthony Clark was a very big bencher in the the 90s and 2000s, big hmm. good lifter as well. Um, prior to becoming a bench specialist, he used a reverse grip. Yes, he used a reverse. Yes,
1: I've seen videos of him.
0: He used a reverse grip. Um, he supposedly had this special denim shirt from inzer. Um, it was two layers of denim, and inside it, inside the two layers of denim, was a poly coated layer of canvas. Okay. So, so it was a canvas insert in the chest plate, and it was a double denim otherwise, but it was like a piece of canvas coated in polyester, so Anthony Clark said, hmm. um. But his 800-pound bench, you know, basically was invalidated by a lot, even though he did it. it, People said he hit the rack. It was kind of a sketchy video. He got to – I mean, these – I mean, who was the big guy that benched the huge raw bench at the Boss of Bosses a couple weeks ago? Oh,
1: yeah, I know you're talking about. Um,
0: I just remember his Instagram handles irregular strength. Um, Julius. Julius Maddox. Julius Maddox, right. And there was some controversy on that because – you know, yeah, he got the rack command, but then it looked like he lost. it. the spotter started celebrating and didn't grab it right away. <sighs> it, it was even more controversial than that because I think people, most people, recognize with Julius that he locked it out. Mm-hmm. He received the rack command. <laughs> not, not everybody recognizes he locked it out, but well, yes, I get you. Okay, getcha. I mean, I mean, maybe, maybe a plurality of people recognize he lo- he got the rack command. He, he did. He got the
1: rack command, and and it was locked. And and people need to be less shitty about it, but.
0: So it was probably pretty similar to that controversy. Got it. And so people, some people didn't count it as the first standard-bound bend. But once that bench shirt got complete open back, I mean, Ryan Canelli and uh, the the guy who started RPS, Gene Rycheck, who unfortunately just passed away, you know, these guys started pushing the envelope. Scott Mendelson, they started mm-hmm. pushing the envelopes up to 1,000 pounds. Mm-hmm. And it was like, boom. Four-minute miles is a great analogy because... Once someone hit that four-minute mile, it was like the floodgates were open. Yeah. Um, Back in 04, Ernie Franz with my other coach, Maris Sternberg, first uh, had the lace-up canvas squat suit, and that was Mm. because he invented that because Maris had a very strange build. Um, She was a type 2 diabetic. Mm -hmm. God rest her soul. She passed away a few years ago. Um, She would drink two liters of Mountain Dew, and I would say, Maris, you know, maybe that's not the best idea. Um, she would say, no, her doctor tells her to do that to regular blood sugar. I'm not, I'm not convinced <laughs> about I'm still not convinced about it science is sound. So she had an odd build, um, you know, very strong squatter. You know, squatted 600 in the gym, legitimately squatted 500 plus as a female back before. You know, she is one of the subjects of the uh, IPF Ernie Franz lawsuit. So yep. we'll, we'll talk yep. about her more. Yep. Uh, but in 2004, I believe she squatted 501 as a master's. At the 04 WPC Worlds in the first lace-up canvas squat suit, wow. and at that time, uh, I know Ernie was talking with Enzer about maybe you know licensing his brand to Enzer. Nothing ever came of it. I don't know. I wasn't in those conversations. I do know that he sent a prototype of the the lace-up suit to Enzer uh-huh. to look at, and now we are today, years later. I mean, Ernie's out of business, so there's 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 nothing to. There's nothing to argue about. Um, Ernie's been out of business of making gear for number of years now, but it was maybe four or five years ago, Enzer um, introduced the Leviathan Ultra Pro, um, the successor to their Leviathan, which was a canvas squat suit, which had poly on the side, mm-hmm. which was a, a change. Um, I don't think the Leviathan Ultra Pro necessarily is going to give anybody anything more, but it, because it's lace-up, it makes it way easier to get it out of, and the adjustability and tightness is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you'll see that at the WPO. You're going to see a lot of lifters wearing the lace-up suit. At least two. I know that. Well, there's, there's going to be more than that. Oh, there will be more. I understand. Yeah.
1: But I, I have personally seen two because I train with them. So
0: Yeah. And that's kind of brings us to today. Uh, we talked last week. You know, raw lifting started taking off in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, and the 2000s, you know, it was kind of a niche, really. Yeah. And then mid to late 2000s, it's taken off till today. Um, yeah. And now it's the majority of lifting.
1: Oh, yeah, it's, I mean, growing exponentially year over year, uh, especially compared to equipped lifting. It's it's not you know, even a contest.
0: Yeah, I mean, Dave Tate, we talked about this. Dave Tate, I, I looked up the statistics. He must have done it in, a in like, an Instagram live video or something yep, like that. he did. But he talked about how if you actually look at the actual pure numbers of equipped lifting now versus the early 2000s, mm-hmm. equipped lifting really has not changed that much. No, it's pretty stagnant. I would say it's grown some, maybe even from the early 2000s. But the rate of growth between the 2000s to now versus raw, it's it's there's no comparison. No, there's now, not. I can tell you from the experience of my meets, multiply powerlifting definitely, you know, it was at its peak in the mid-2000s. Mm-hmm. When, when the WPO was at the Arnold Classic, and everybody was aiming for that, gosh, I remember, I think it was 06 APF Senior Nationals, which we talked about Senior Nationals. That's only the open division. At this time, it was only equipped, only multiply. I mean, there was, you know, some weight classes that were two and three flights deep. You know, we had 180 200 lifters mm-hmm. at senior nationals. Only the open division, only multiply equipped because that's all we had at the time. Oh, wait, what year was that? That would have been '06 in California.
1: California, I think it was '07. Was in Salt Lake City. Mm-hmm. That was the meet that it was right. It was right around that mid to late 2000s that. Mike Strom cut like 22 pounds in six days and still went on total like 1,900 plus almost 2,000 181.
0: I think that might have been a little bit later than that. Was it? But okay. I, I could be wrong. We could check with uh, at Mike Strom on that. Yeah, always look at open powerlifting. Yeah, we could look at open powerlifting, of yeah. course. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it multiplied powerlifting kind of after the WPO went away. It really took a backseat. And what you saw was that I think because RAW became an option, you saw a lot of lifters that used to lift – in, say, like a mediumly tight double-ply poly squat suit mm-hmm. just because that's what you could wear, Yep. all of a sudden when RAW was available, they just said, well, I'm just going to lift RAW. Yeah, screw it. There was a lot of lifters like that. And I would say this is like your your state-level lifters, people that aren't competing to be the best are competing as a hobby. Yeah. Um, your hobbyists, when equipped when powerlifting was all there was, they went out and got a squat suit that gave them a little bit. They maybe wore a bench shirt but it wasn't like the gangstered out WPO lifters were going to have yeah. that are trying to maximize. Which, by the way, is still a hobby for them too, just higher level. True. Um, <laughs> more of a passionate hobby than some of the lifters I'm thinking of. I, I get it. I'm just saying like. Well, until yeah. the WPO becomes a true, you know. Professional organization. Everybody everybody there gets paid yeah. a salary, then yes. Yeah. It, agree. It, it They're is, all still
1: hobbies. It is all a hobby. Again, high level. Not, I'm right. not discrediting that, but it is a hobby.
0: But those, and that's why I said those state-level lifters, when raw lifting became a yep. thing, they just decided, well, I'm just going to lift raw because I don't really care about this equipment. I don't train with the team. I don't train with people, even people that did. Um, there was many of us that decided, eh, I'll try raw. I did a meat raw just because everybody was kind of doing it. I did a bench deadlift meat raw. Surprise, surprise. Everybody's doing it. Yeah, everybody was doing it at the time in the mid to, mid to late 2000s, early 2010s. Um, was my uncle talking about everybody smoking weed back in the 60s? Right, everybody was doing it. Everybody was yeah. doing it. man. I was fine. I just took a couple of puffs. I didn't inhale though.
1: No, oh, he totally did. Yeah.
0: Um. And now we're back to today. <laughs> <laughs> we're back to today, and we have the WPO who made, made the return last week. Did. Um, last I ex- year. Last year. Sorry, did I say last week? You did. Uh, we'll edit that out. You probably. T- probably not. You did inhale, didn't you? <laughs> Uh, I actually had a long conversation with WPO President Wayne Pullum last night. I would like to have him on the podcast and talk about the return of the WPO in yeah. 2018. I think he's got an interesting story where it came from. Um, but Bain and I are both kind of feeling uh, that equipped Powerlifting, it, it's kind of becoming full circle, and it's mm-hmm. going to make a comeback. I truly do believe that. It's already started. Um, we're running an equipped only meet this fall. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, I talked about last week, there was the growth of the Illinois Raw Power Challenge, which when I started it mm-hmm. was truly, we thought it was just going to be a one-off niche meet per year. Mm-hmm. And now it's almost like we're going to run an equipped meet as a one-off niche meet. Now, some of our other meets have an equipped division, but sure. the local meets, it's 80-20, 90-10 yeah. raw geared. Oh, yeah. Now, like our Can-Am coming up that's got lifters that have lifted before, that's more like... I would say it's probably 50-50. I'm looking at the roster. Okay. We ran APF equipped Nationals last year which for some reason had classic raw. <laughs> I'm not sure why classic raw is at equipped Nationals. Now we've just combined it together. But nonetheless, yeah. um at equipped Nationals last year, we probably had at least half and half, classic raw equipped, maybe even 60-40. Hmm. Um and so we've seen it, you know, start to come back and I'm going to go through, you know, my reasons and then Bane can kind of chime in and add his on why I think equipment powerlifting might make a return. The first one is that we are kind of going full circle. Um, there's a reason that people started wearing equipment. Now, yes, it was to lift more weight, of course. Yep. Um, but the other reason was it helps protect your joints mm-hmm. as you become a master's lifter. I remember this, the argument of raw versus equipped is nothing new, people. I remember having these same arguments on goheavy.com and outlaw powerlifting and any other precursor message board. Raw versus equipped has been the argument, and drug-tested, drug non-tested. Mm-hmm. It's been the argument that's been going on as long as I've been in this sport. Um, and one of the arguments for equipment was always, well, when you become an older lifter, the only way you could continue to compete would be with equipment because of that supportive uh, compression element to the squat suits and the bench shirts. I mean, I know lifters who, without at least a pair of squat briefs, they would not be able to squat heavy without a pair of knee wraps. Their knees wouldn't be able to take squatting. Yep. Um, definitely, without a pair of briefs, they wouldn't be able to sumo deadlift. Yeah. Uh, and there's even some lifters I know that probably couldn't bench heavy without at least a loose uh, polyester bench shirt. Yeah,
1: yeah. And and uh, agreed. I mean, that's one of the biggest things I think when I when I think about what what is going to drive the the return of uh of equipped lifting is. At some point, your body is going to say, "I've had enough. I need help." Right? right? I don't care what you're on. I don't care what you, you know. How you train, how much you focus on your recovery. Father time is undefeated, and yeah. so at some point, people are going to have to say, "Either I set the barbell down, or if I want to continue to compete and compete at a high level, I'm going
0: to need to change my own game." And this is anecdotal. Yeah. I have no statistics. I have a lot of you know dates and things. The last couple of years. I have no statistics to support this. It's mm-hmm. Just my anecdotal evidence. Generally speaking, equipped lifters stick around for a longer time. Yep. The raw lifters I see, especially the ones that shoot to the tippy top of the sport very, very quickly. And this is true in a geared as well, I would say. People that shoot up really quickly, there's a, there's a definite burnout factor there. Oh, yeah. And the big equipped lifters that are lifting equipped now, you know, you go down them from five years ago. Are those same five, the same five raw lifters now? Some, yes. A couple, um, but it's. From what I've seen, the burnout factor is going to be high. I mean, the risk of injury is high in either sports. I mean, you're not doing quip lifting because, you know, merely because of its, you know, injury-saving qualities. In Mm -hmm. fact, you know, when you get to the full gangstered-out, multiply, super-duper phenom and canvas Mm -hmm. squat suit, okay, the compression element and the injury-saving Quality of it probably started to go out the window a little bit.
1: Yeah, because at that point, you're, you're, the weights that you're handling are so high that it, whatever safety factor you might have in there is it, 100% gone, and it's replaced by gravity being, you know, gravity.
0: Well, then, and especially when you talk about a bench shirt, um, the mechanics of the lift change so much mm-hmm. that it, it really, you know, it, it almost becomes, and people bitch about this becomes a belly bench as opposed to a chest bench yeah the bar path becomes much lower and this built into board and the, <laughs> and the stresses become way different and again if there was any saving on injury you know when you start handling the super heavy weight with the gangstered out gear mm-hmm. you know if you're using you know looser briefs and a looser bench shirt and looser squat suit which is what i recommend most people do if they're going to train in gear some of the time um, you don't need to train out in your your tightest gangster gear all the time. Right. Um, most of the time, you want a loose pair of briefs, maybe occasionally a loose bench shirt to wear for training. Um, that's what people use for longevity, definitely. Mm-hmm. Right. Right.
1: Makes sense. Uh, I, I I truly believe that again, we have so many young lifters in the sport that at some point they're going to have to say, uh, this isn't working long term.
0: Well, and it's funny. There's a guy, I don't know if you'll listen to this, Guillermo Blanco, who's a strength coach now yes. at, uh, what's the school he's at? McKendree. Uh, McKendree. And he's doing a great job there. They had a powerlifting program. Seems like he's really trying to take it to mm. the next level, I'd say. I mean, they're and,
1: signing athletes and everything.
0: And it is, it is a unique college that is putting their support behind powerlifting as a sport, you know, as a sanctioned sport through the school and giving out, I don't know if they're giving out scholarships because they might be a Division three school, but... I would guess they're probably at least giving out considerations, you know.
1: Yeah, There are athletes, I know this, there are athletes signing, because I've, I've seen his posts, mm-hmm. i you know connected with him too on social media. seen his posts, there are athletes signing specifically for Powerlifting. Yeah. There are scholarships, I don't think, but.
0: Yeah, I don't know if you can do scholarships at that level, but that doesn't mean there aren't, quote, talent awards.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, that happens
0: at the Division three level all over the place Yeah, I do. Uh, yes, no, definitely. <laughs> and I'm not hating on that. No. I'm it, not hating on that it's at all. the only reason I went to school. And I saw Guillermo her squatting with the old man crew on Saturday. Uh, this is a number of months ago. Mm-hmm. And I was said to Guillermo, I said, I think literally every joint in your body is covered right now. He had on knee sleeves. He had mm-hmm. on a belt. He had on elbow sleeves. He had on a bow tie. Um, did I say he had in a belt? Yeah. He had on a belt. The only thing that wasn't covered was his hips. And I said, the only thing you don't have on right now is briefs. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, oh, wrist wraps.
1: And he probably had two pairs of compression shorts on.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And he just laughed because he knows it's like every joint was covered, you know, or compressed in some way Mm -hmm. and said, Welcome to geared powerlifting.
1: And here's the thing, though, is he doesn't make any bones about it. He fully supports equipped lifting.
0: Again, I'm just using him as an example because it it was funny because I looked at him and he had every joint covered with the of his his hips. It's it's classic raw, totally different. Right, yeah. So. One of the arguments against Equipped, which Bane and I recognize, is that it is expensive. I mean, granted, a super-duper Phenom is like $250, maybe more. Yeah. Uh, a Leviathan Ultra Pro is like $400. Yeah, it is. Okay, now, you don't have to get that when you start out. No. Meanwhile, guys are dropping $150 for fancy squat shoes, um, $350 for their fancy SBD, you know, lever-adjustable belt. How much are the white uh, power uh, knee sleeves from? Did you say white the white power white, white branded white branded power knee sleeves yes
1: white, white branded power knee I, sleeves. Don't, I
0: don't i don't know how much those are but i don't think i'm gonna buy them uh, you know what here's another here's another, here's another rant of mine knee sleeves are bullshit <laughs> what what in the f is the point of knee sleeves just put a, you know what we have something that we invented going back to freaking 1970s they're called knee wraps they're Ultimately, as adjustable as you want them. You can wear them tight. You you can wear them loose. <laughs> Why am I, I... I see some of my lifters, and they spend like 10, 15 minutes. They talk about that it's hard to get in gear. You just had the same struggle, but with two different pieces of equipment with knee sleeves. But it's
1: totally different because it's classic raw. Oh it's God. so different. This is Don't a, you understand? You wouldn't a, get it because you're an old school guy here. Right, exactly.
0: And this is the argument we get in the APF because we have two... You know, again. Another rant of mine, if it was up to me, which it is not, even though I'm on the executive committee, I don't I don't unilaterally make decisions. If it's up to me, we'd have one raw division. Wear knee wraps, don't wear them, whatever. We don't need two separate divisions. Now, granted, I get that there's a difference between not wearing wraps and wearing wraps. Granted, I would just like it if we had one raw division. I could deal with that. I'd still beat them. <laughs> but people want us to have a sleeve raw division and mm-hmm. then a wrap raw division. To me, now, now I can when you're wearing nothing on your knees versus something on your knees, I can kind of get that there's a difference, but are we really parsing out a difference between, you know, I tighten up knee wraps and I fit myself into the tightest fricking knee, s- $100, we're talking about cost, $100 SBD knee sleeves. I've never even paid that much for a pair of knee wraps. And I guarantee I get more amount of knee wraps than you get on your knee sleeves. I mean, are you saying that you don't agree with
1: my wanting to be separate and different because now I'm offended and I don't like that you've offended me. So I'm going to go protest your meat by buying a meat entry and then standing in front of of the bar because you've offended me.
0: That's a whole. See, I'm getting the anger. I'm
1: getting it going now.
0: I don't even know if we should talk about that subject in an episode. Uh, I have no problem
1: talking about that subject because that, that to me, if, if the USAPL wants to be on message, Right, That decision was the most on-message thing they could have ever done. I've, I've <laughs> talked about this. But we're getting a
0: little, a little, we, we little will. bit inside baseball here. But we we're, will.
1: I, I apologize. but we're, uh, we're,
0: we're talking about the transgender issue in the USAPL, if you didn't know. Um, some lifters opposed their decision. They went and protested at a meet in Minnesota. Yep. That's another another episode for other times.
1: That same lifter, one of the ones who led that charge, called me a misogynist. On another podcast, I believe. They, they and did, then yeah. ratings bombed that podcast. Yeah, so what are you gonna do? Not not the ratings of the podcast bomb. They just ratings bombed us.
0: Right, right. I Understood. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, when you start talking about cost, yeah, when you're when you have hundred fifty dollars shoes and a hundred dollars knee sleeves and like and ten cents was a, a matching <laughs> hundred and fifty dollars singlet. Oh my god! And a three hundred fifty dollars belt. You've you've paid as about as much as I have in the last few years for gear. Uh, that's not wrong. And, and I and use that's... my same piece of gear man i could use my same canvas squat suit from 15 years ago and it still works just as well you're really going to fit in that uh i've mm. got i've got numerous sizes bane you don't know I mean, bane okay. at, at some point i should take you into the the museum of gear DSA. do you have a red of pain is that what you're going to show yeah. me here between <laughs> between ken stone and i we have got a lot that's of that. old gear okay okay that's i get it so uh it's longevity that that's the number one reason for yeah. me and, and that's why it will come full circle and it kind of leads into the second My second reason is that is you've got a a huge influx of lifters into the sport. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things I said, and this was when we started the raw meet, because it it lowered the barriers to entry to entering the sport. You didn't need fancy equipment. You didn't need to learn the fancy equipment. All you needed was a singlet to enter the meet. Granted, you could have done that before, but I think it made it more approachable to have a division for that. Um, I talked about this with my boss who entered some of my powerlifting meets, Suzanne Gray, um, owner of RightFit, and I said to her, we ran a 5K every year. And I said, why can't we make powerlifting the 5K of strength sports? Why can't your average weekend warrior, instead of, you know, training for maybe a 5K is a low level, because, you know, to be fair, Bane and I maybe could go out and run a 5K right now. I mean, I could. I just may not be able to wake up tomorrow. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be good. We no, could probably no, do no. it. So maybe a better analogy is like doing a 10K or doing a half. A half marathon, is a bit, that's a big jump from that. The, but, though
1: I will say with zero training, I did a Tough Mudder three years ago.
0: Isn't that a 5K length?
1: Uh, no, that is a 10-mile, sir. Whoa. 10-mile, wow. yeah. Oh, sidebar on this one. You want to get me all fired up? So I love my wife. I love my wife more than any human on this
0: planet. Will your wife ever listen to this podcast?
1: Nick, Nick does. She actually is very oh, supportive. Okay. So
0: I don't believe uh, my wife has. So. Yeah,
1: Nick is very supportive. She tells me what an idiot I sound like. So
0: <laughs> my um, wife has not listened and told me how much of like, an idiot I it's,
1: am. It's the things I say. She loves hearing my voice because she likes the sound of my voice on. I'm a radio. not sure
0: Jackie likes hearing my voice either.
1: Wow, wow. That's uh, we'll talk about that offline. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I love my wife. My wife and I have very different passions when it comes to fitness. Nick is very much about group fitness, and and she's just taken to these these adventure races. Started with, uh, and we did this together, we did uh, the Warrior Dash, now defunct uh, thing. And so she wanted a slightly bigger challenge, she did a Tough Mudder. Fell in love immediately, loved them, and kept pushing me to do one. And I do respond to peer pressure sometimes. So right after uh, AAPF Nationals 2016, like a month later, I said, yeah, I'll do a Tough Mudder, why not? And as we're starting the race, we get probably half a mile into it. And we're talking with the group, and again, it's a large group of people, like, you know, 5,000 people do each one of these things. And the guy standing or running next to me, I'm like, yeah, you know, my wife decided to do this. Like, yeah, it's a 10K. No big deal. He's like, what the, what the hell are you talking about? 10? This is 10 miles, man. And we're looking at Nick, and she looks at me and goes, sorry.
0: Yeah, and for those of you who are non-runners, a 5K is... miles, I think. Something like that, yeah. And a 10K then would be like maybe a little less than 7 miles. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not a runner, but that's just my guess. Yeah. 10 flipping miles plus 25 obstacles. And I I do think that relates in because that's kind of where I'm going with my second point is that after you've had these influx of new lifters, after you've done a few meets, after you've done, you know, after your gains, there's Mm -hmm. a law of diminishing returns with gains in powerlifting Mm -hmm. new lifters, eventually you're going to be looking for a new challenge. And what, what I see a lot with females, and this is not... I hate on females, but what I see more with female powerlifters, male powerlifters too, is that they'll get into the sport and it'll be a challenge for them to do their first meet. Yep. They'll do it. They'll be super excited. They'll immediately sign up for their second meet, sometimes maybe too soon afterwards. Yeah. After their second or their third meet, maybe they don't get the PRs they're looking for. Maybe the gains start to get a little slower. Maybe they get a little nagging injury here and there Yep. and we don't see them again. Yep. And it's like... It's hard to keep them in the sport after those initial gains, females especially. And I I don't mean that as a a slight against females. I think when females are training for powerlifting, they train just as hard, if not harder, than males. In fact, I think they listen better. Oh, 100%. Um, They have less ego, and they listen better to coaching. But on a long-term basis, you know, women tend to, some, tend to do the sport for a couple years and then go on to the new challenge. Yep. And you see this with, I think, more with some of the new male lifters than you saw in years past. Um, and I think if you have that next challenge, and for them, that next challenge could be hey, maybe I could try putting on a bench shirt. Maybe I could try putting on a squat suit mm-hmm. and seeing. Again, we talked about it. What's powerlifting about? It's about lifting as much weight as possible. Exactly. That's the point of the sport, is to lift as much weight as possible. The point of the sport is not to you know, conventional deadlift raw with no belt. Like, Hey, that's cool. I recognize it's different than my sumo geared one. Yep. But at the end of the day, if it's an equipped meet, it doesn't matter.
1: In any media, at the end of the day, if you're talking about how much weight did you lift? I, I have this conversation at work a lot, actually. So people hear, I do this and I'm like, Oh, cool. How much do you lift? Of course, I always go, how much do you bench? And I want to slap people when they say that. Partly because my bench is pathetic, but, uh, <laughs> as more what the issue is, but it, I have this conversation a lot where it doesn't matter if I was equipped, if I was full gear or not. And if my numbers were half what they are, it's more than the average person. Right. One, two, it's all is about is just getting a lift, whatever. Literally, if, if you want to talk about strength, it's just whatever it takes. And if you choose to limit yourself, like in my case, I lift raw. Theoretically, I am limiting myself. Now, yes, there is still a technique thing that I will have to learn. if and when I ever jump into gear, But at the end of the day, I am technically limiting myself because that gear will assist. And I want to emphasize that it assists with lifting more weight. You throw that bench shirt on the bench, it's not lifting the weight by itself. Right.
0: Yeah. And I think that people looking for a new challenge, you're going to see people like Bain, if I might be so bold, eventually may. Did did you just assume my future? Tip, dip the tip in. Dip the toe in. Well,
1: we know what's happened whenever I dip the tip in.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And he might be looking for a new... And I think that's what will happen. I think that, honestly, you've seen such an influx of new power lifters in the last, we'll say, especially five years. Oh, yeah. Um, If you want to see longevity for those lifters, there has to be a new challenge. And the gear will help the longevity from a joint uh, integrity standpoint. But I also think it's going to help because there can be that new challenge. And, hey there it adds an entirely new element of uh technique and gosh i i almost thought about reading this entire post but it was too long i guess this podcast's already kind of long but greg damiga had like the story of the super duper phenom mm-hmm. that he posted on his facebook wall and greg damiga is a master's lifter he's our minnesota state chair for the apf um very strong guy his w- wife is super strong as she's lifting the wpo He had this whole, like, soliloquy of his... That's a great word, by the way. (laughs) All his... I mean, that's almost what it was. His ins and outs of the Super Duper Phenom Hmm. and the various materials. And I had this whole conversation with him at the last meet about how, like, there was this red material that everyone loved, but then Inza ran out of the red. And then they had the dark blue purple material, which everyone liked, but it wasn't as good as the red. Mm -hmm. Then they went to the black material, and no one liked the black material. It was too stretchy. Hmm. Then they went to... Uh, a different black material which didn't stretch but didn't give any rebound hmm. so you have the old black you have the new black then you have the new royal blue material Royal blue. which apparently is maybe number two on the list it's maybe almost as good as the red slightly better than the the navy blue hmm. um, and how the sizing had been so different it becomes this whole game and it can become pretty expensive and greg damiga my God! If you see how much gear he's had and sold, it's unfreaking believable. Sure, he's—I think he said in that post—he's had over fifty-eight super duper phenoms. Wow, which he's bought and sold. That's crazy. That's that's wild. Now, most of us aren't. That's why usually, if I find a piece of gear that works really well for me, I just—at this point—I just don't rock it till the wheels fall I off. I just rock it until I get too big for it, too small for it, yeah. or until I feel like all right, it's trying. I have to get something new. Sure, sure. Um, My third reason, you know, so we got longevity in the sport. We've got a new challenge. Mm -hmm. I do think if the WPO becomes what I think it could become, I don't know that it will. I think it has the potential. It's on ESPN3, which is mostly a streaming channel. The Trace. Uh, The Trace. Um, (laughs) When Multiply Powerlifting was at its biggest, was in 05, 06, 07, when the WPO was at its highest. And... There's a trickle down effect of some of these bigger meats. What we've seen in the last, let's say, five, six, seven years is a lot of big pro raw meats. Mm-hmm. And thus, you know, the new and up and coming younger lifters, they see what the big lifters are doing. And there's a yep. trickle down effect. And they say, well, my favorite lifter is lifting raw. Eric Littlebridge is lifting raw. And the big dogs in Australia. Mm-hmm. And that's the type of lifting that I'm going to do. If you have a big crop of lifters that are doing some crazy multiply lifting at a, at, at a high level, with competition. It's it's not enough to have a Dave Hoff that totals 3,005, 3,010 in a one-off meet. It's super impressive. Mm-hmm. But when you have it all together in one meet with lifters going against each other at a super high level, that is what will draw people to multiply and geared powerlifting. Yeah. And there's going to be a trickle-down effect if it is successful, as, as it has the potential to be. Um, you will start to see all of a sudden... You and I joked about this the other day. What's going to be the next Mark Bell uh, slingshot product? Yep. I guarantee you, at some point, Mark Bell is going to release some kind of briefs. We talked about my raw lifter that had every piece of him covered. I'm surprised that nobody... Here's a million-dollar idea, folks. You can steal it from me, because I don't have the the wherewithal to do it. Somebody should go to Ernie Franz, Mm -hmm. buy the name, license the name Franz Briefs, Mm -hmm. and sell a stretchy pair of polyester briefs just for training. You could sell... You could sell 100,000 of them to CrossFitters all across the place. Billions
1: and billions and billions and billions.
0: Because there's no gear company out there right now that is selling briefs for the hips or even a bench shirt. You could do the same thing with a bench shirt. Oh, yeah. The the, the problem, the slingshot doesn't do that because there's no compression of the shoulders and the pecs. Right. If you had that old stretchy poly material that Ernie used and you sold a pair of, like, snug briefs and an open-back snug bench shirt... You could sell a bunch of them to people that just want to lift heavy and don't necessarily want to compete in powerlifting. Yeah,
1: and and that is that is how you bring equipped lifting to the masses because you now say you don't need to compete to wear this stuff. You make it accessible. You make it.
0: Um, yeah, I mean the Leviathan Ultra Pro, and I like it. I've used it. It's it's easier to get it out of than the regular canvas suit. Yeah, but it's not approachable to the average person. And And. It shouldn't be right. That's a whole other discussion. When we talk about our, we'll have an episode on the WPO. I I,
1: mean, but it's uh, to to give an an equation to people that maybe if they are listening to the podcast and they don't quite get it because they haven't been around the stuff long enough or they just never been around equipment lifting. We we both played soccer. You played football, so I I distinctly remember soccer cleats. You know, uh, you could get. Again, this will date me a little bit. The R, the Nike R Nines, the original, you know, Brazilian Ronaldo, his original signature boot. These were two hundred dollars boots. Mm-hmm. Awesome, great shoe. Uh, I got them, and unfortunately, they were not made for the hard, uh, almost dirt pitches of Eastern Iowa. Oh gosh. And the the I actually had a blowout when cutting in front of somebody. Oh, the entire cleat system all blew apart.
0: Used to happen to denim bench shirts all the time. So, go and I. I
1: look at adidas and adidas had the the my Addy, i don't know if you remember this at all but that you could do this with yeah. mostly their casual shoes but also with their top of the line predator soccer boot and this is a 350 dollar boot i remember talking to my dad about it he's like this thing better last you because i was senior in high school he's like you know we know i'm gonna go play college and everything he's like this thing better last you, your entire college career 350 dollars for a pair of a pair of shoes and, and it did they, they last me all all you know those, those following five seasons and but that is the difference between a you go over to you know Dick's, you get a fifty dollar pair of Umbro's for your kid. This is the difference, right? And when you but when you had that availability and that uh, that variety, that's what then makes the game even more
0: this game even more approachable. Right, and I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, but years ago I said you know there's always been this talk about should powerlifting be in the Olympics? Could powerlifting be in the Olympics? Mm. The IPF is part of the World Games, which is off years from the Olympics, mm-hmm. so they are. Quasi IOC related, and if powerlifting ever made it in the Olympics, it probably would be through the IPF. <laughs> I mean, that's just—I think that's just what it would be. Yeah. Um, I always said the WPO and multiply powerlifting instead of going the Olympic route, we should be in the X Games. Hundred. Oh yes, we've talked about this. Yeah. Which I don't think the X Games is as big as it was when we were kids. Maybe no. they're still around. They are, but it's
1: not like—I mean, I remember when they first came on. It was like, holy crap, this is awesome.
0: To me, the extreme the extremeness of you know a denim bench shirt or a or a tricked out gangster open back bench shirt a laced up canvas squat to so to me that is more the crowd of granted your power aren't you know skateboarding and riding bikes but to me it fits more with the x games than the olympics I could see off skateboarding it'd be kind of cool yeah i could see that maybe in his <laughs> younger years yeah. uh but so, no you're right it, it, that
1: extremeness and that i mean that was where I think a 1,300-pound a squat is more at home when it comes to public viewing versus the Olympics.
0: Right. I mean, I think that's the whole thing of equipped and especially multiply powerlifting is that we're not necessarily trying to make it approachable. We're trying to make it the freak show. And yeah. I mean freak in the nicest way. In the, in the best way, yeah. In the best way possible. I, I think that's where it could potentially take off is because people watch these lifters lift unbelievable weights, things that are not approachable at all. No. That the average gym goer never you would never see a thousand pound bench or a thirteen hundred pound squat in a specialized hydraulic monolith squat rack with a specialized eight and a half foot sixty five pound specialized uh, squat bar and specialized bench you know bench bar. Which, by the way, you might see that at the WPO this year. Yeah, I would say that's likely. Yeah. So those are my three reasons, Bane. Uh, You got some other points to add i,
1: I got a couple and, and just honestly just for time's sake i'm gonna hit the the biggest one i think is gonna make make equipped great again <laughs> <laughs> and and again i i i know we, we've talked about this a couple of times as far as that that particular stadium but what equipped lifting what power lifting needs and we've got it a little bit on the raw side and honestly equipped does to a point and i think the wpo will help this is it takes personalities I I think the when it comes to this sport, the closest thing to it is professional wrestling. Where generally speaking, watching dudes in you know wrestling trunks, not very exciting. Like it, it's a couple of guys grappling around, right? Those who understand the sport get it, like it. But when you add the
0: entertainment factor, and just to just to chime in, that is what the original WPO looked like. Right? It's like the a Classic. It was it, now it wasn't staged like wwe no no you don't. but have it was sh- that type of atmosphere and presentation exactly you
1: need somebody who again if you could give a Dwayne johnson personality to a hoff or to um you know a crystal tate you know get somebody like um charlotte flair you have that type of personality where i'm the best i know i'm the best and if you don't like it piss off right that that is eventually what is going to and again, you have some of that. It's just bringing that to the masses.
0: Right. And it's the old saying like, you know, in professional wrestling, you know, it used to be, well, if you saw the guy walking through the airport, would people notice him? Yeah. And it, I think it's the same thing with equipped multiply powerlifting. Mm-hmm. Would this lift be super impressive to the average gym goer? And, you know, if you just have people doing, you know, four or 500 pound squats or deadlifts, no. It's, it, it's even, really it doesn't not. matter what you're wearing. That's not going to be impressive. Yeah. But if you see a 1,300 pound squat. With a guy like Hoff, who does, I think, have some personality to him. He's, he does. Um, you, can, you can follow him on social media, and you can see some of that personality come out.
1: But, it, but again, he's got to be able to get a mic and do it in front of a crowd. He's got, if you can do that and you can light a crowd up, again, this is why you get a guy like Daniel Bryant, like The Rock, like, I mean, also, you know, Hulk Hogan and, you know, the Macho Man and, you know, the Outsiders, right? Like, they could get a crowd going or going against them. They were amazing at it.
0: Well, and I think that's something the WPL will need to look at in future years. If you looked at what they did recently with that Strongman kind of like documentary series yep. where they brought out the personality in those guys. They did. And I think that's something they probably will Born have strong, to. Born strong, by the way. What did I say? Born strong. Oh, born strong. Okay, but it was a strong man, right? It was a strong man right. uh, it documentary. Yeah, but it's called Born Strong for those who are wondering. Yeah, and I think if you could eventually, if the WPO continues to to be on ESPN or, or in some fashion, maybe an online streaming kind of thing, you know, go out and do some footage of these guys training. I mean, West Side vs the World was a hugely popular documentary, and all that yeah. was was the story of a, and I'm not denigrating West Side, but. Basically, an obscure powerlifting gym in Ohio. Yeah, and it's been hugely impactful in powerlifting and then the strength training world in general. Yep. But what that documentary did was it took snippets of things on all these crazy characters that have been at Westside. Mm-hmm. If you could do some lead up to the WPO and go film some of these guys, like at Monster Garage, you've mm-hmm. got some crazy strong ladies and dudes training there, yeah. moving crazy weights. You know, you could have some lead in segments. Um, and maybe some B footage when we're Bane and his crew will be changing the way to the WPL. Yes, you know that's some future production things that you know I think, like you said, could bring out the personality.
1: And, and I think that's that's hugely important. And and that is what because again you you look at what is look at the NFL right. Generally speaking, most football plays are not exciting. It's you know three three yards an hour, five yards an hour. Oh hey, we got a ten yard run here. It's not super exciting. But what you live for is. You know, that 40-yard bomb, the, the receiver goes up and gets it. He gets hit by two, you know, D-backs, still lands on his feet, and he, you know, wanders into the end zone. It's stuff like that. We have this glimpse of athletic, you know, absurdity. And so we, we already have that with the strength part of it, and now you you got to be able to market that in a way that, you know, people want to continue to watch it. And, again, I, I think that's possible with the WPO. Not that you can't do that with raw lifting, but I do think with the WPO, it's it's so far out there.
0: And make. it does become a little bit more of the freak show, I think. That's, exactly. that's where it can carve out a niche. And again, not that, you, like you said, it's not something bad about Raw lifters. I mean, what Ray Williams has done Raw is unbelievable. It is. Um, you know, what locally a guy like Eric Littlebridge has done Raw, mm-hmm. you know, who actually lifted a quit back in the day, by yeah. the way, because again, that's all there was. But he all, his heart was always in Raw, I can tell you that. <laughs> he, uh, he never was super big on the equipment. And when Raw became a thing, man, it's, he took he, off. He jumped right on that, and yeah, yeah he took off.
1: And so, so again, it's when you have that the personality, and you and you get a, a opportunity like the WPO to market that, and and hopefully to do so for a few years to to your point, carve that niche. And then right. you can start segueing off into the different.
0: Yeah, things. I mean, the WPO was running from the late 90s with the APF. It was originally the APF at the Art of Classic and eventually turned into the WPO, and Karen Kidd took it over. And it was going in the early 2000s when I started, and it went through about 05, 06, 07, I think was the last year there. Mm-hmm. And so if you can go year after year and, you know, develop a following and, you know, Again, the lifters that are watching that now then could be competing two or three years down the line. There's a, yep. there's a trickle down effect. It's not immediate. I wouldn't recommend somebody, it's just somebody had a video on Facebook or a picture on Facebook It's like watched West Side versus the World and they've got like, you know, the bamboo bar with bands <laughs> and chains and hanging kettlebells. Yes. You know, and doing every conjugate thing they can find. So I don't recommend people watching the WPO and then running out and buying a, a Levi- Leviathan Ultra Pro.
1: But, it, but it's one of those where, you know, there there is going to be some, honestly, probably some 19, 20-year-old kid that sees that and says, five years from now I'm going to be doing that. and right.
0: Especially if there's money in
1: it. Exactly. And and that's eventually that's what it's going to be is it's the money. Because, you know, I, I have this conversation with people a lot. Why isn't soccer in the U.S. bigger? Why would it be when you can make $100 million slinging a football around where you don't have to deal with the stigma of being an American? It, people love it here. Whereas we have one person who's making – barely you know top
0: running back money over in the Premier League that's an American right I mean it's it's viewership and it's where the money is exactly and if you took the best athletes in football the best athletes in basketball mm-hmm. I would even say the best athletes in baseball that's a little bit more skill oriented mm-hmm. um, but especially football basketball if you took some of those guys and you put them into Olympic weightlifting or you put them into powerlifting oh yeah especially, especially football oh, or yeah. you put them into soccer I mean, what would some of those guys do? Oh, LeBron James and Goal would be amazing. Right. I mean, yeah, imagine uh, if there had been big money in powerlifting and a guy like Mark Henry that dabbled in it. And <laughs> was destroying Literally tickets. dabbled in it for a couple of years and then went made it to the Olympics in a completely other strength sport. Yep. Then went to strongman and did really well there. Imagine if there was money in powerlifting and he had stuck with it. Mm-hmm. I mean, gosh, I remember back in the day, you talk about a four
1: minute mile. That's
0: uh, right. I, I mean, I back in the day, I was thinking, gosh, if I could just get Mark Henry to Franz Gym and get him to get on some equipment, I mean, he could have already done the thirteen hundred pound squat. He did a thousand raw. He did a nine hundred deadlift raw with not that much training, by the way.
1: Yeah, he's 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 a freak. I think, uh, you know, a good friend of mine says that he he's possibly one of the greatest strength athletes of all time. Right, and
0: never even probably put his full effort towards it. And I don't blame him because what did he make millions of dollars at? being sexual chocolate. Being <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh what was the old lady that he had the affair with? Uh May Young. Yeah. May Young and sexual chocolate. Whew, yeah. I think that might be where we should end today. <laughs> sexual chocolate.
1: Yes. Um yes.
0: Next week we're going to shift gears. We've been talking a lot about the history of the sports. Somebody say gear. Gear raw. Oh, man. And I think we'll go to a kind of different episode. We're going to talk about your first powerlifting meet. Not Bane's first powerlifting meet, but you're the listener's first powerlifting. Oh, meet. let's talk about your first time. <laughs> and aren't Bane and I's tips? I actually do an entire seminar on the rules, logistics, and how to navigate your navigate your way through your first powerlifting meet. So next week we're going to take some time and mm-hmm. and go through some of my points, go through some of Bane's. You know, just I uh, this whole conversation with somebody on Facebook today. Oh, really? Yeah,
1: specifically about you doing your first meet.
0: And I think there's a lot of information out there that's uh, disparate. And so if we could put it into one, you know, kind of hour-long podcast to listen to and give some people some tips. Now, I don't want you to then not sign up for our Beginner's Powerlifting Meet or Intro to Powerlifting Meet. Yeah. Because, and I, I like that event, especially because we talk about it and then you actually do it. And if anybody knows anything about learning styles, hearing it and doing it are two different things. Yes. Hearing it. Doing it, seeing it, putting it all together. That's why I think Screwing
1: it up and doing it.
0: That's why I think our, <laughs> our beginners or intro meets have been successful is because we we put some of the things we'll talk about next week in literally immediately into practice and yep. in a sanctioned powerlifting meet. Yep. So I'd say that is all for the day. Anything else to add, Bane? That's it, man. All right. This is Eric Stone signing out. Strength and anger.